We have been journeying through the heart of, of the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. And in the center of the Sermon of the Mount, it has three sections. In the center of the center is the Lord's Prayer. And it is fitting that, that we would be, be celebrating and singing the Lord's Prayer as part of our Holy Communion service today. We've also, as we've been going through the, the Gospel of Matthew, we've also been considering the games that people play and how different, how different they can be from what Jesus calls us to. Jesus calls us to. And the game we'll be talking about today is Monopoly. Monopoly was created as a teaching, as a teaching tool. It was created by Lizzie McGee, and she originally called it the Landlord's Game. She wanted to teach a particular economic theory to people so that they could see that what we do now is not, not only, the, only the way to, to buy and sell property and develop property and, and, and that, the, that our economy could be a different way. And so what she did was she created this game with property and two sets of rules. In the first set of rules, it was very much like what we do now. You, you buy property, you develop it, you try and get a monopoly, and then you try and just make everybody else pay as much as they can, send them to jail if they can't. You, you make them afraid when you put a hotel on the property, afraid that they'll land there, and, and you just try and just get rid of all the competition. But she designed the game so that it would have a second part. You would play it again, and again, you would be buying property, developing property. But in the system that she was trying to get people to understand, and instead of some people ending up with, with a monopoly, everyone benefited. She was trying to help people see that the way that we do things is not always the best way, that we could all be better off. Well, that second version never caught on. People bought her game. And they played the first one, they just never even bothered to play the second version. Charles Darrow uh, began taking that Monopoly game after playing with it, and, and, and he began, began making Monopoly games. He called it a different game. Instead of the landlord's game, he called it Monopoly. And, and it became very popular in the 1930s, and, 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 so, and just so popular in the 1930s. Um, it was still a teaching tool in this version, when I had my seventh grade Sunday school class play the game of Monopoly. You know, I've told you about that Sunday school class. It was the Killer Bees. Class was going to be okay if only one boy named Brandon showed up or Brett or Brent. If only one showed up, it was fine. If two showed up, it's going to be a, it's going to be a hard class. If three showed up, it was killer. <laughs> It was killer. And, and, and the day that they showed up, we played Monopoly, and we said, you can change the rules. You can vote at any time to change the rules. We wanted them to see that, well, the system we're so used to and the system that we love, democracy, isn't always fair. And, and, so, and so we played this game. They played this game, and when they realized that two of them could band together against the third and vote to change the rules, boy, did they ever. And poor Brandon, by the end of the game, it got where if they went past go, they would collect $1,000. He wouldn't collect anything. By the end of the game, he no longer even had a token to push around. They gave him a little piece of paper and said, you have to push this instead of your car. 
It's not always, it's not always fair. It's not always the, 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 lesson, the lesson that we expect. It's, it's not always fair. And, and monopoly, monopoly is that way. It is a winner-take-all situation. And I think that's part of the reason why it became so popular during the Great Depression. Because people realized it's a winner-take-all kind of world, and it seems like there's nothing left for me. And the Great Depression with huge unemployment, Great Depression when areas of the country, farmers could not plant, could not even bother to plant. Great Depression when people traveled trying to find more jobs, but there was no job. And the lesson from the Great Depression was it could happen to me. It could happen even to me. And there was reason to be afraid. Reason to be afraid. It could happen to me. You know, Jesus looks out at those disciples. And he looks at them. And he says, you're afraid. You're afraid about having enough to eat. You're afraid. You're afraid about the clothes, whether there'll be enough clothes to wear. You're, you're afraid. He looks at them, and, and, and they are afraid over and over because they, they fear it could happen to them. They could go into a town, and, and, and no one welcome them and turn them away, and there'd be no food and no housing for that, for that stay in that town. And, 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 and it could happen, and, and that's, that's part of what anxiety is. It's, it's, it's that fear that fear that it could, it could happen, happen to me. And, and it can be almost, almost, oh, overwhelming, spinning around and around. Fear, fear. You get on the, uh, you, you, you get the news and, 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 and there's nothing but fear. It doesn't matter if you're reading the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. The editorial style is completely different what they want the country to do. But both of them agree. You should be afraid. You should be afraid. And, and, and you, you, you get an email, open up your email, and more often than not, there is a, an email from a politician who wants you to give them money, and you need to give them money because you should be afraid of what's going to happen if they're not elected. Fear sells. Fear works. It gets us to move, to do things we wouldn't, we wouldn't do usually. But it can also, also have consequences. Be afraid... And you may get where you don't like or even hate people who disagree with you about the, the solutions, solutions that, to, to the, the, the future that we're afraid of. Be afraid, and, and it may cause hatred among groups that disagree about what should be done. Be afraid. Be afraid. And, and out of that hatred, out of that hatred may come violence. And once there's violence, there's more fear of what could happen, more fear for safety. And it is a vicious cycle. No wonder, no wonder we have heard 
The only thing there is to fear is fear itself. Fear causes so much pain. It can be an endless loop in our thoughts and brains, not only as a country, but as, but as individuals. I don't know if you've had this happen. You lay down and, and go to bed, and, and all of a sudden you begin to worry about tomorrow and, and worry about what could happen. And, and the next thing you know, you begin to worry because you haven't gone to sleep. And, and there are studies that say that if you don't get enough sleep, if you don't get enough sleep, then, then it's going to hurt you the next day. And it, it may have consequences for your brain, and it may, it may make you fat if you don't sleep enough. And, and, and there's all kinds of horrible things that can happen if you don't get enough sleep. And the next thing you know, you're trying to go to sleep because you're worried about not getting to sleep, but you can't go to sleep because you're worried about not going to sleep. Amen. <laughs> Jesus looks out at the disciples and he sees they are afraid. And what he does, the first thing he does is he names it. He names their fears. You don't need to be afraid, he says. I know, I see you, you're afraid of having enough to eat. I see you, you're afraid of, of not having clothes. He names those fears. And, and maybe your fear isn't, isn't fear of, of having enough to eat. Maybe it's fear of you've eaten too much. And, and now you've got to pay in some health consequences. Maybe the fear, is, maybe the, the fear that you have is, a, do you have enough clothes? But maybe it's, are they the right clothes? Are the jeans supposed to be skinny or bell-bottoms? I'm never quite sure to stand in front of the closet and say, hmm, I don't have anything to wear today because I'm worried about what people might think. Fear. And Jesus names those fears. Did you ever do that? Did you ever name the fears? Write it down. It helps. It helps to just write it down. Jesus, this is something I'm afraid of. And write it down. And I found that not only is it helpful to write down what I'm afraid of, but to start writing down how it could get worse and how it could get worse. I know that sounds crazy. Like I'm just creating an anxiety cycle. <laughs> but, but stay with me. Stay with me. To write it down and say, Jesus, I'm afraid this cough, it's not going away. Maybe there's something wrong with my lungs. Jesus, I'm afraid it's not going away and maybe there's something going wrong with my lungs. And Jesus, what if it's cancer? What, what, what if it's cancer? I'm scared, Jesus. And to ask yourself, how could Jesus be part of that? What if it is cancer? Can I trust that Jesus will be with me? through every doctor appointment, through every painful moment? Can I trust that when I feel like I can't go on 
Jesus will hold me close, be with me through that. Can I trust? And what, what if I were to die? Can I trust? Can I trust that in that moment, God would be holding me, with me, carrying me to that next life? That I am so connected to Jesus that in my baptism I die with Christ and I rise with Christ. and He is there holding me, my good shepherd, through that. Maybe your fear is not the cough. Uh, maybe it's the child who doesn't seem to be making right decisions. And you're worried. You're worried about what they're going to do. And the danger that they're placing themselves in. And you push it. Push it to be the worst outcome could be and say, I'm going to trust you, God. If that were to happen, I'm going to trust that you would be there with them when I cannot be with them. I'm going to trust that they'll know you're loving them even when I cannot. I'm going to trust you through this even when it's beyond beyond me. The fear when you can't remember a name. And you begin to think, you begin to think, is it the normal thing for my age? Or is something more going on? Is it, is it Alzheimer's? Dementia? Is that what's going on? And you push it. It is the worst fear for many of us. Not being able to be in control. Not knowing ourselves or others. Can I trust you, Jesus, that through this, you know me? You love me? I'm afraid of being alone. Can I trust? Can I trust you to be with me so that I am not alone? Can I trust you in that worst case scenario? Yeah. Yeah. He interrupts their fears, interrupts the loop. And says, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. He tells them that there'll be enough worries for tomorrow. You don't need to worry about today. Because there'll be enough worries for tomorrow. It's like that, that bar, that bar on the, on, the, on the back of the bar sign that, that Scott Black Johnston described when he was in Florida visiting. He sees this sign in the back of the bar. And it says, it says free beer tomorrow. And the next day, and the next day, you come in and say, the sign said free beer tomorrow. I'm here.
here for my free beer. And the owner says, well, it's no free today, beer free today. It's tomorrow. <laughs> and every day someone comes in and says, I'm here for my free beer. I saw the sign yesterday. And, and he says, it's tomorrow. It's tomorrow. The free beer is tomorrow. The troubles will be there tomorrow. The troubles will be there tomorrow. Maybe. Maybe some of what we're worrying about won't come tomorrow like the free beer just never really arrives. Maybe some of what we're worrying about may not be a trouble we have to deal with. Jesus interrupts and breaks that cycle. And the other thing that, that Jesus does is he reminds them of the presence of God. Paul Tillich calls this the eternal now. I like to think of it as the eternal in the now. There are two kinds of time. There's that physical time that we experience, and then there's the eternal time of God. Can we look for the presence of the eternal in this moment? Consider the lilies. Can you see how God cares about them? God is here in this moment. Consider, consider the birds that are fed and cared for. Consider them. God, God cares for them. The eternal God is in this very moment. You'll open your eyes and look for God. And in this way, Jesus is drawing them into a deeper faith. A deeper faith. You can trust in the middle of the worries. You can trust your future to God. You can trust God in the present moment. And in a sense, it's a warning. He tells those disciples, oh, you of little faith in this moment, this time when they're worrying about food and drink and clothes and, and whether or not, oh, does this, this, does this make me look, this robe make me look big back there? <laughs> All the worries, the worries. And he says, no, no, no. To be afraid. To be afraid. It's not faith. We tend to think of, of faith as, as having doubt and, and having, having these hard questions and, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm not certain about how everything works and, and we think that that's the opposite of faith. But Jesus looks at them and calls them those of little faith, not because they're doubting, but because they're afraid. They're afraid. They don't have faith in a God who is generous, a God who provides, a God who is gracious. Their fears get in the way of them seeing who God is. And what is God like? God creates an abundance. Seas for the creatures, mountains for the goats, deserts and wilderness and abundance. God creates abundance. God gives with abundance. 
abundance. And we look at Jesus on the cross and we see the abundance of grace and the abundance of love. Jesus hanging there saying, I would do anything for you. There is no end to my love for you. There is no end to the grace that I have for you. If you will receive it, I would do anything. I would die for you. That's what God is like. A few verses before this, Jesus talks about, about God's love. It's like the showers falling from the sky, the rain showers that fall on both the just and the unjust. There's no limit to who God loves. And in those moments when you worry and wonder whether God could love me, there's, there's the sunshine that is shining down on every person because God loves is gracious toward every person. What is God like? What is God like? Grace and love. We'll sing the Lord's Prayer as part of our Holy Communion. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. When you pray, is that we need to, be, to remember every single day, we need to remember again and again and again to pray by starting not with our anxieties and our worries, but to begin our prayers by saying, Our Father, our Father in heaven, your name is holy. You are so much more, more than I can imagine. You, you and your father, not distant, but close, close and loving. Hallowed be thy name. Give us, give us our daily bread. To say that every day like we are Israelites wandering through the wilderness, depending on manna every day as we're going towards the promised land. And we are. We are living in this realm of we've left slavery in Egypt and we're headed towards God's kingdom. And to trust in God every single day. It's something, something we need to be reminded of every day. Paul lived life, a life that could have created great anxiety. He could have been worried every, every town that he goes to as to whether or not he's going to be beaten. Every time he gets on a ship, I'm going to be ship, shipwrecked again. Every time that he goes into to a town, am I going to be beaten? Am I going to be thrown out of town again? And he says instead, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all the Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds 
in Christ Jesus.